if I can get started. <laughs> well, I, as we were finishing that last song, I hope that you found yourself in that place. You know, we were talking about, Lord, I have exchanged the ways of loving you for the things of this world. I've set up altars that have taken me far away from you. And you may feel like that is definitely you this morning. You may not need me to tell you one more word. And you're like, yes, that is me. I am far from the Lord. I need to be brought back near to him. Or maybe you don't feel like you're that. You're like, you know what? I don't see that in my life. And yet, when we looked in Ezekiel chapter 1 last week, Dave helped to walk us through that passage, and we beheld the glory of the Lord. I think any time you behold the glory of the Lord, you will see in your own life, man, look at the ways I have wandered from a deep and abiding love for Jesus Christ, for God the Father, and for the Holy Spirit. Well, like I say, last week in Ezekiel chapter 1, we did see that glory of the Lord, and now in Ezekiel chapter 2, where we're going to be picking up, we're going to think Ezekiel saw this grand picture of God's glory. Why did God reveal his glory to him? For what purpose was that glory revealed? And then we're going to turn and ask the question, once we see in Ezekiel's life, what God does once revealing his glory, we're going to consider what it means for us. As God revealed his glory to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ to now say, okay, what What is God going to do in my life as a result of that? Let us pray, and then we'll jump right into our text this morning. Our Father in heaven, as we have prayed this morning in the house of prayer, hallowed be your name. May it be honored and revered, always treated with the respect that is owed to you, our eternal, immortal God. Lord, we now open your word And I come to it with great fear and trembling, knowing that you are a great and powerful God, revealed yourself to Ezekiel, and and he fell down on his face. And so this morning, as you speak through your word, Lord, we fall down. We desire to be trained by it, and yet, Lord, we know that this is the powerful word that has come from you, our Lord. So teach us to respect this word the way that you taught Ezekiel. And yet, Lord, through Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear, for you are for us and not against us. And so we come now with boldness before your throne, asking you to do the work that your Holy Spirit sets to do every Sunday. Change our hearts to be more like Jesus Christ, I ask in his name. Amen. We're working our way through the book of Ezekiel. Dave started last week, and on the back of your bulletin, there is a reading guide for the book of Ezekiel. Everyone was caught up last week because Dave read the entirety of chapter 1 for us, which meant, as of a week ago, all of you were caught up on the reading plan. Well, on the back of your bulletin this Sunday, you'll see that this last week's reading was chapters 2 and 3, and I'll be looking at all of chapter 2 with a little bit of chapter 3 this week. We won't be preaching all of every section, for you see some of the sections there are quite long, but we'll be preaching selected passages out of that reading. Uh, We want to encourage you as your pastors to read along with us. The book of Ezekiel is a prophecy book. It is sometimes filled with so much imagery that you wonder what is even going on. And we're going to try and help break that down for you along the way. But I encourage you to read the entire book of Ezekiel along with us. With that, let's jump right into Ezekiel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And he said to me, that is he, God, said to me, Ezekiel, Son of man, stand on your feet 
and I will speak with you. Let's just stop right there for just a minute. There's a term that God uses for Ezekiel, and he's going to use it many, many, many times over. In fact, this term, son of man, is going to be used 91 times in the book of Ezekiel. That is far more than it's used anywhere else in the Old Testament. For comparison, Ezekiel is called son of man 91 times in comparison to the mere 15 times this term appears in the entirety of the rest of the Old Testament. God is saying something really specific about Ezekiel using this term. And I want to point out two specific things that God's doing here. One, when he calls him son of man, he is drawing a distinct contrast between chapter one, the vision of the glory of the Lord, and Ezekiel. Ezekiel is not God. Ezekiel is very different from God. Compared to the vision that we saw in chapter one, God is grand. He's enthroned. There are chariots and there's visions of beasts and animals all around. Who is Ezekiel? Son of man. Just son of man. Ezekiel is not like God. And yet, he also calls him son of man to distinguish him from the Israelites. He doesn't call him son of Israel or son of Jacob, as you might expect of Ezekiel being an actual Israelite. But he calls him son of man. That term man might actually be translated, some of your Bibles may say, son of Adam. He's distinguishing Ezekiel from himself as God, but he's also distinguishing him from the Israelites. And that's going to become really important in the rest of this passage. For Ezekiel was called by God to be not like the people he is a part of, distinct from them in a notable way. So Ezekiel here, called son of man, not only shows us his distinction, but also stirs up images in our mind of who else called themselves son of man. Well, Jesus. This is one of Jesus' favorite terms for himself. Throughout the Gospels, he'll call himself Son of Man. And he does that for a variety of prophetic reasons. And yet today, we'll see a striking resemblance between the sort of calling Ezekiel has and the kind of work Jesus Christ had to do as well. And I'll be seeking to draw some of those parallels for you, even as we see this in the term itself. Let us keep going in verse 2. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. All right, so we have a picture here. Ezekiel, in the previous chapter, has seen the glory of the Lord, and he fell down on his face. And now God says, I'm going to speak to you, Ezekiel. I have something to say. Stand up. But Ezekiel doesn't himself stand up. You notice the text doesn't say, and I got on my feet. It says the Spirit, that is the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit of God, entered into Ezekiel, and the Spirit, it says here, he set me on my feet and set me on my feet. The Spirit of God did this in Ezekiel. You see, it is the Spirit of God that raises him to his feet as the Spirit is preparing him to receive and to obey God's word. So here God is saying, rise up, I'm going to give you a message. What is the message he has to say? Let us keep on reading. Verses 3 through 7. And he said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or they refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, 
though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. So the calling of Ezekiel is a calling to prophesy, to take God's word and to give it to the nation of Israel. And he's commanded not only to speak God's word, to speak it in such a way that he is without fear. Now, Ezekiel has good reason to be fearful. The prophets that have gone before him have not ended well. They've killed some of them. Many of them they have disdained. They have rejected the word of the Lord that has come through those prophets. And so when God tells Ezekiel, don't be afraid. You notice he doesn't say, well, everything's going to be perfectly fine. He says, though you have briars and thorns and you sit on scorpions, they're going to know you're my prophet, even in the face of your own adversity. God calls him to be brave and unafraid. And this calling to be brave and unafraid, to speak God's word, is regardless of whether Israel listens to them or not. There in verse 7, it says, And you shall speak my words. Tell them whether they hear it or they refuse to hear it. Now, Israel, as the verse says, it was a rebellious nation. This is right before the exile. This is the final. The exile is the third time Babylon comes to destroy that southern kingdom of Judah. And right before that happens, Israel is still in active rebellion, worshiping other gods and thinking they'll be fine through the whole process. And so God says, this nation is in rebellion to me. Now go to them, Ezekiel. Tell them the message that I have for them. Don't be afraid. And it's not on your shoulders whether they listen to you or they don't listen to you. Now, spoiler alert, they don't listen. They go into exile. Through the book of Ezekiel, we're going to see when this happens, but they won't listen to the message of Ezekiel. And yet God says, that's not your concern, Ezekiel. Your concern is to follow what I tell you and to do it. Speak it to the nation of Israel. What is that message? Let's go ahead and look here. How is Ezekiel supposed to fulfill this calling? Verse 8. But you in contrast to the rebellious house of Israel. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, fill your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey." Ezekiel, as his title, Son of Man, says, was called to a different life than the Israelites, a life of obedience to what God has said. Ezekiel, don't be like that rebellious house of Israel who rejected my word, who didn't follow my ways. Instead, you, Son of Man, 
eat what I give to you. Open your mouth and eat it. Now, this is prophetic language. It's not supposed to literally say, hey, I'm going to give you a pumpkin pie. I want you to eat a pumpkin pie. Right? Ezekiel has a metaphoric scroll he's going to eat here, and this symbolizes him receiving God's word to then speak to the Israelite nation. And yet he's called to be distinct from them, to not be similar to them. And the words that he has to speak here in verse 10, what is the message that comes from the Lord? He sees this great vision. Ezekiel falls down and God says, go talk to him. What's he got to say? Verse 10. He spread it out before me and on this scroll written on the front and on the back, there were written words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. How do you like that message? Right, there's a, sometimes in some churches in modern day, there's these ideas that we might speak a word from the Lord to one another, and yet it's always something kind of positive. Have you ever been to a church where they, they do things like that? When's the last time you said, I have a word from the Lord from you. In three days' time, you will get gangrene and lose three of your fingers. <laughs> Nobody does that. The word from the Lord here is not a happy word from the Lord. It is a word of lamentation, mourning, and woe. It is of their coming destruction. Israel, you've disobeyed. Israel, you broke covenant faithfulness, and now covenant curses are coming. This is the message he has for the people of Israel. No wonder he's commanded not to be afraid of them, because he has much reason to be afraid. Here then, on the final verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, something really kind of surprising happens right at the very end. We understand his task, receive God's word of lamentation, give it to the Israelites, don't be afraid of them. How would that taste in your mouth? You're going to eat this scroll of lamentation, of mourning, of woe. You've had this in your life, right? Mourning. What does that taste like in your life? If you were to metaphorically eat this sort of a scroll, it would be bitter. That's not what it's like when Ezekiel eats this scroll. We're surprised to hear that when he eats it, it was in his mouth as sweet as honey. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. We're going to understand why. Why was it sweet rather than bitter? But it's important to see in the text here that there's a surprising turn right at the very end. Well, now we understand the task. It's to receive God's word, to speak the word regardless of the response, and to be obedient in the face of Israel's disobedience. What I'd like to do now, having walked through our text, is to go back through it and to consider the beauty, the encouragement, and the challenges we find through this text. For Ezekiel, how we see it pictured in Jesus' own life, and then what it might mean for you and me today. We're going to see this in three specific points for the rest of our message here. The first one is obedience over observables. The second is faithfulness over fear. And the third one is dependence over independence. Obedience over observables, faithfulness over fear, and dependence versus independence. Let's start with that first one, obedience over observables. Ezekiel is called to be obedient to God regardless of how the nation responds to it. Verses 4 and 5. I will send you to them and you shall speak to them and say, Thus says the Lord, whether they hear or they refuse to hear. For they are a rebellious house. 
they will know that a prophet has been among them. You see, Ezekiel's ministry, as he goes to the nation of Israel, is to tell them all that God has to say about the lamentation, mourning, and woe. And at the end of Ezekiel's ministry, they won't have listened. They won't have heeded the words from the Lord. They will not turn and repent. In fact, if a spiritual analyst, maybe a a church analyst, looked today at their at Ezekiel's ministry, they might say, well, that was unsuccessful. You failed to win over the nation. You failed to bring them back from the brink of exile. And yet God's task for Ezekiel was not the observable, tangible effects of repentance in the nation. He said, Ezekiel, I'm calling you to obedience to me. And Ezekiel did this. Regardless of how they respond He called him to obedience. Likewise, in Jesus' own life, we see that he lived a perfect life of obedience to his heavenly Father. At the time of Jesus' own death, we might look at the observables of his life and say, he didn't amount to a lot there. If If someone looks on the outside and you got 120 followers, they're scared in an upper room, and one of your good friends betrayed you to death. You died as a criminal. Things aren't going well for Jesus on an observable exterior basis. But Jesus wasn't concerned with merely the observables. If he was, he wouldn't have gone around saying difficult things. When large crowds would follow him, he would almost always, check this out in the Gospels, when a big crowd starts following Jesus around, he starts doing things to make them go away. He says things that make large swaths of them disappear. When they're ready to crown him king, he just sort of disappears into the crowd so that nobody can do that. You see, Jesus wasn't concerned with measuring up in the observable ways. He cared far more about obedience to his heavenly father than observable results. Now, you and I know he accomplished much in this life. And yet for someone in first century as a Jew, they would think, He wasn't it. The importance of obedience over observables is just as important for you and I today. We must get a grip on this. We must understand that it is God's call to obedience, not the end result of obedience that he calls you to. You see, our American culture has so saturated our minds in ways that we think, man, bigger is better. As if faithfulness in a Christian's life means that there must be an ever-growing number of disciples who follow them around. Or faithfulness in a church, obedience to their Savior, means your church will definitely be growing in numbers. There's a subtle assumption that for those Christians who don't see as much fruit in their evangelistic efforts, not as many people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ as maybe the next person, there must be inferior in faith in some way, right? You're sharing the gospel, but no one's coming to faith. Clearly, you don't have as much faithfulness to God as this guy over here who's bringing many to come to them. That's a subtle deception that the enemy would have us to believe. This runs contrary to Jesus' teaching where he he says that some will produce 30, 60, or 100-fold. See, God has allotted for you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, specific works that you might walk in them. Good works. Things prepared for you before the foundations of the earth that he has specifically tasked you with doing, not someone else. And so we see that we need to understand it is the sovereignty of God in our lives, not our persuasiveness of speech that leads to conversion and evangelism. 
We should get this doctrine of regeneration fixed in our minds so that we can continue to persevere in sharing the gospel with other people. We just spent a sermon series talking about sharing the gospel. How are you to persevere in doing this if you don't see many people coming to faith in Christ? It's to understand who does the work of conversion. Who regenerates? That word merely means to bring to spiritual life, a spiritual regeneration. You might hear in John chapter 3 that you need to be born again. It is God's work to bring the dead to life. It is your work to share the gospel with those who are dying. This is not an excuse for silence or passivity or for lack of strategy in how to share the gospel or of trying to become better at it. But we should strive always to, yes, seek to find opportunities, seek to become better at proclaiming the gospel, try to develop apologetic tools to share and convince others of the message of Christ. But let us not be fooled into thinking that our persuasion or clarity of presentation has a power in itself to bring the sinner to faith in Christ. It's not on your shoulders. Let that be very freeing from you that you do not have the power to change someone else's heart. Now, I know some of you really wish you could. You have a son. You have a daughter. You have a cousin. You've got a parent. You really wish you could cause them to come to faith in Christ. Fall down before the Lord and pray for them. Ask God to do the work that you cannot do for them. But take the weight off your shoulders to think that God can't use your stumbling, fumbling, messed up, really anxiety-ridden presentation of the gospel to bring someone to faith. He absolutely can. We are to seek obedience over observable outcomes. Secondly, not only obedience over observables, but faithfulness over fear. We see in our text how God calls Ezekiel to faithfulness and not to fearfulness. Verses, two, uh, verses 6 and 8. You, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor dismayed at their looks. Verse 8. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. See, God called Ezekiel to faithfulness, not fearfulness. Ezekiel was not to fear what Israel might say about him or what they might do to him, but just to concern himself with being faithful to what God has said for him to do. Verse 3 tells us the outcome of this kind of obedience. Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. I told you we're going to return to this. Why is it sweet as honey when it should be bitter as mourning and lamentation? It is because faithfulness to God, regardless of the cost or how difficult the message may be, how unpopular what you have to say is, faithfulness to God is for the believer sweet In the mouth. It tastes good. That even though Ezekiel had to speak words of lamentation, for him, faithfulness to God was a very sweet message. You know, I sometimes get teased about the sort of things that I like and don't like to eat. Uh, For instance, I don't like ketchup, mustard, or mayonnaise on anything, ever. I don't particularly like 
uh, well, actually, I don't like salad dressings at all. Like, period. Every salad dressing is out. I know you probably just thought of one you think I'm going to like. I won't. (laughs) They're all out for me. Ask my wife. Uh, Dips. I don't dip anything into anything else. (laughs) Period. Ever. And you're like, fondue? I'm like, nope. I'm out. You know why else? Because I don't really like chocolate that much. And now I just lost some of you. (laughs) You're like, he doesn't like chocolate. He definitely isn't a man of God. (laughs) You know what? As much as people look at me and think I'm strange, I sometimes look back and go, there are a couple of things I like that you don't like and it doesn't make sense to me. Let me give you one example of this. I really like the heart of a lettuce. You know, it's that part of that, uh, particularly iceberg lettuce. The heart of an iceberg lettuce is the part when you're done eating all the leaves, that it's that brown part at the bottom and then the spiky bits that fall off to the sides. If you take that brown part, cut it off, and then cut off all the spiky bits, there's this little opaque center in the middle. Does any, I got to see. Does anybody else ever eat this? I got one. I got one. I love you. <laughs> Two, three. That's perfect. See, the rest of y'all are crazy. Here's what I'm talking about. My family will fight over who gets the heart of the lettuce. It's delicious. And I've tried over the years to have different people try this heart of lettuce. But everybody always tells me that it's either too bitter or they look at me crazy because it's like I just told them to eat the outside of a watermelon or to eat like the strawberry with all the green leaves attached to it. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But isn't it amazing how a particular food can be for one person, disgusting, and for another person, delicious. It's the same food. It has the same flavors. But for me, the heart of a lettuce is delicious. And for the rest of y'all, minus three, it's disgusting. This is what it's like when we follow the Lord. Faithfulness to the Lord can be like this. For a dying world who cares nothing for the ways of God, who isn't interested in him, When we speak the truth of God's word, they don't want to hear it. It's disgusting to them in ways. And yet for us, even the difficulty of the bitterness of God's word, as much as it might be for others, it is sweet to us. Because faithfulness to God is always sweet to the one who loves God. Ezekiel had this in his life. You see, faithfulness for Ezekiel was going to look bad for the Israelites But for him, when he ate that scroll, it was as sweet as honey. He said, the word of the Lord, and it's a beautiful thing. Likewise, Jesus does this exact same thing. In Matthew chapter 10, he says, Do not be afraid of those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What Jesus taught his disciples to live out. Don't be afraid of the people that are out there who might kill your body, be afraid of him who can destroy both body and soul. Jesus lived out a fear of the Lord. He chose faithfulness to God, his heavenly father, over fear. He does this in the garden when he prays, Father, not my will, but your will be done. For he's not afraid of the men who are next to him, but rather he seeks faithfulness to his heavenly father. I don't know what God's calling you to do, what measure of faithfulness he's calling you to. Perhaps it's to confess a particular sin for the very first time to somebody who's here in the room. Just to to bring it to light. Don't hold it in the dark any longer and confess it. Perhaps it's to seek reconciliation with a person, honestly, you'd rather avoid. 
Or maybe it's to speak the truth of God's word in a context where it doesn't want to be heard. Perhaps it's your work room. Perhaps it's in a family setting. But you're going to bring the truth of God's word to bear. And it's not going to be popular. Whatever you're facing, whatever step of faithfulness, do not be fearful. Don't be afraid. But rather seek faithfulness. For the word of the Lord is sweet to those who love him and who desire to please him above all other things. John Calvin, writing about this very point, says this, When God wishes to move us to obey him, he does not always promise us a happy outcome to our labor. But sometimes he wants to test our obedience to the point that he will have us be content with his command, even if people ridicule our efforts. Be content with the command of God. Is that enough? Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Is the sweetness of faithfulness worth more to you than men's approval? Those who love Jesus Christ and follow God his Father will choose obedience, sorry, choose faithfulness over fear. Lastly, let us consider what it means to be dependent over independent. For Ezekiel, we see in the very beginning of the passage, Ezekiel has fallen on his face in the end of chapter 1, and the Spirit enters into him and raises him to his feet. This is where we see in Ezekiel's life the need for dependency. Now, I've been holding him up pretty high throughout the rest of this passage, and Ezekiel's been really faithful in a lot of ways. We're seeing the rest of the book. Let me knock him down a rung for just a minute. Ezekiel's just a man. He sins like every other man. He can do nothing apart from God unless God enlivens him to accomplish his will. Ezekiel will not faithfully proclaim the word of the Lord to the nation of Israel without fear, regardless of how they respond in his own strength. He won't do it. He will do it in the strength of the Spirit. And this is why in the very beginning of our passage, we see The Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. Ezekiel did not set himself on his feet. The Spirit of God did the strengthening power for Ezekiel to stand and receive the word of God. We see here, this is the work of the Spirit in Ezekiel's life. And you might think that Jesus didn't have such a dependent problem. He is the second person of the Godhead after all. Yet you might be surprised to see the way that Jesus himself modeled a dependency upon the Holy Spirit. He modeled it for you and for me, that all whom would come after him and would follow in his footsteps would see an example of a man who depends upon the Spirit. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit descend on him in baptism. The Father put his Spirit on Jesus to proclaim truth. And he was even led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. You see, Jesus demonstrates for humanity what it is like for a human to depend upon the Holy Spirit. Jesus took the position of dependency and thus paved the way for us to walk as he walked. Just as for Ezekiel, for him to receive and depend on the Spirit, and has Jesus modeled it so you and I can do nothing Nothing of spiritual fruit 
of righteousness and holiness apart from the work of God. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The apostles and the disciples there in the upper room after Jesus ascends into heaven are told, wait, wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Don't go out. Don't preach the gospel that I just told you to preach. Wait, why? Because you need the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord that for all who have repented of their sins, who have turned in faith and looked on Jesus Christ on the cross and say, I will turn from my ways. I will believe in the name of Jesus Christ, having died for my sin. They receive the Holy Spirit in full, a full deposit of faith for the future. And that same Holy Spirit is what enlivens and empowers you to live a life of faithfulness and obedience. It is not within your own strength to do so, to be obedient over the observables in your life. It's not within your strength to be faithful over fear. This is something which you must consistently and regularly as a follower of Jesus Christ say, I will depend and submit myself to the work of the Spirit in my life. And if you succeed to any measure that you are holy or grow in godliness, that is a work of the Spirit in you. Having depended on the Holy Spirit that is within his people, we can say with the psalmist, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, Give glory, for he is the only one that's worthy. He is the only one that's strong. And we don't deserve any of the glory. It is all for him. So you see, Ezekiel was called to obedience over observables, faithfulness over fear, and to a life of dependency over a life of independency. To such you have been called to be obedient and faithful, living dependent upon the spirit that is within you. Let us pray. Father, I praise you for the greatness of the vision which you have laid out in Ezekiel 1. Cultivate in this congregation a great love for your glory, a great desire to see your holiness on display. Having seen your glory, train us by the Spirit which you have put within us to depend fully and wholly upon you for all good works you have for us. Would our faithfulness and our obedience never result in greater praise and glory to our name? We are not worthy, Father, but you are. May the glory belong to your name. Fill us with a great fear for your name. Train us to lay aside the fear of man. We confess that we have been too much discipled by our own culture. We need your spirit to renew our minds. Renew our minds to more highly value your well-done, good and faithful servant than the well-done of the people who are right around us. Train our minds to be more concerned with obedience to you than the outcomes of our obedience. Consume us with a desire for your holy name and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Give us great boldness in speech. May your word for us, regardless of how difficult it is, may your word for us be as sweet as honey. Father, we know we cannot do any of these things apart from your Spirit's activity in our lives. And so I ask, I ask that you would do all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Spirit, who works mightily in your church. Amen.
The song that we're singing together now is a call and response song where Tom and Jesse will sing a question and we as a congregation will answer with a simple phrase such as we do or it is. We will join together then in the choruses to respond that our God is worthy.